You're listening to a Roddenberry podcast. Don't touch that dial. We'll be right back. We'll have more news this evening, but first, the latest genealogy, a Roddenberry podcast. Episode 8, The Secret Weapon of 117. Welcome to Mission Log Genealogy. I'm Earl Green. And I'm Norman Lau. Each week on Genealogy, we examine Gene Roddenberry's early adventures as a TV writer nearly a decade before the creation for which he is most famous. And those early days writing for TV covered many other genres as he honed his craft, found his voice, and kept just trying to make it in a very challenging young industry. This week, we jump forward a year from last week's show, examining the first sci-fi script Gene wrote that made it to television screens across America, The Secret Weapon of 117. Earl will be back with trivia in a moment, but first, here's how you can reach us. Genealogy is meant to be entertaining and informative, but it's also the beginning of an ongoing conversation about the works of Gene Roddenberry. Drop us a line at missionlog at roddenberry.com and join us on X, formerly known as Twitter, and Facebook at missionlogpod. While you're at it, leave us a review and a rating at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And please remember, your comments could be used on future installments of Genealogy. And now, here is Earl Green with this week's trivia. Thank you, Norman. Dear listeners, welcome to a bygone era of American television, the Playhouse Anthology Show. In the 1950s, both network and syndicated TV schedules featured many examples of these programs, which presented a different story with a different cast in each installment. These were often broadcast live or recorded live to tape as two-act stage plays with no audience and the simplest possible production requirements. Classic plays were adapted for the screen, but new talent also got a showcase as well, and whoever the name sponsor of a Playhouse show happened to be got to look, at least for a half an hour to an hour every week, like a patron of the arts. And it's no exaggeration to say that the TV listings were crawling with such shows. Colgate Theater, Schlitz Playhouse, the Ford Television Theater, Hallmark Hall of Fame, General Electric Theater, Kaiser Aluminum Hour, Kraft Television Theater, Alcoa Theater. Some of the more upscale Playhouse anthologies didn't carry the name of a sponsor, such as CBS's Playhouse 90. Major talents in television writing and production made their breakthroughs on such shows, including a contemporary of Gene's, Twilight Zone creator Rod Serling. The script we have in the Roddenberry Archive says that The Secret Weapon of 117, which was earlier titled The Secret Defense of 117, was sold to four-star productions for a show called Stage 7. And that's not incorrect, but it's also not the whole story. The Secret Weapon of 117 also aired as part of Chevron Hall of Stars, sponsored by Chevron Oil, and it also aired as part of Drury's Play of the Week, sponsored by Drury's Beer. But it was filmed only once. It all depends on where it was shown. Four Star Productions, which was better known for such primetime hits as The Big Valley, Burke's Law, and The Rifleman, repackaged Stage 7 relentlessly to keep milking more money out of its investment. 
and in the 1950s, Chevron, which was the product of the 1911 breakup of Standard Oil, was still largely a California concern, so Chevron wasn't necessarily interested in sponsoring the shows in markets where it didn't stand to actively make money off the deal. Four Star Productions was thus free to attach other sponsors to the same show in different markets. So on the East Coast, Gene's half-hour play premiered on an episode of Stage 7. On the West Coast, it was an episode of Chevron Hall of Stars, where it premiered on March 6, 1956. In at least the upper Midwest, it appeared as part of Don Amici Presents the Drury Play of the Week, with new introductions filmed by Don Amici. The actor intended to star in Secret Weapon as Alfred, Alan Young of Mr. Ed fame, ended up not appearing in this episode, although he would appear in another Stage 7 play. Replacing Mr. Young in the role of Alfred was one Ricardo Montalban, a familiar face in TV and film since the 1940s, and a frequent flyer guest star on television playhouse shows. Now, Gene very likely had next to nothing to do with casting his work at this point in his career. 1956 was a very busy year for him, and he was likely more concerned about finishing and selling the next script than trying to micromanage this one. Still, one can't help but imagine that Gene watched the finished product on Chevron Hall of Stars in the L.A. market and thought to himself, Oh, I really like this guy. It would be another eight years before their worlds collided again. In a 1964 episode of The Lieutenant, in which Ricardo was the name guest star, and, of course, we have it on fairly good authority that Gene and Ricardo worked on something together after that, too. I just can't remember what it might be at the moment. Starring as Kamala was Susan Morrow, another familiar face on film in the 50s, who had appeared in such movies as Gasoline Alley, Catwomen of the Moon, and the one I most want to see now, Canadian Mounties vs. Atomic Invaders. The show itself is generally believed to be lost media. No copies of The Secret Weapon of 117 are known to exist, either as film prints or as kinescope copies on videotape. And if that did exist, that would be some very old videotape which would present its own issues. So we are once again operating from a script that looks to be either the final shooting script or reasonably close to the final draft. By the way, as of March 1956, there were only two Robert Wesley scripts left to hit the air before Gene started using his real name as his writing credit. They do have strange ways. Did you notice how attached they are to each other? The feeling is common in species of two genders. It seems rather touching. Touching? I see only one thing. These are a disorganized, undisciplined people. Allowed to develop, they could endanger the universal order. And 117 is of value as a base. That is a side issue only. If their civilization showed promise, we would live with it instead of destroying it. The agents, where are they? I wonder what can have happened. It's difficult to say. They could have fallen into some trap. The people of this planet may have a defense we do not know about. <sighs> Our first sleep on Earth. It should be an interesting experiment. You pull the covers up and put the pillow under your head, and then you close your eyes. You are ordered to take your hours of sleep in the other room. You chatter like they're females. 
I must have peace in which to plan our work. Two agents from an alien species take human form and infiltrate a quiet Earth suburb to learn about and, if necessary, neutralize any planetary defenses prior to invasion. They soon discover why a similar team lost some 30 years ago was never heard from again. Act 1. In a quiet suburban town, a taxi pulls up to a recently sold upper-middle-class home on Street 117. The somewhat nervous and anxious taxi driver quickly drops off his fare, a young and by all appearances a perfect couple, perhaps too perfect, which unnerves their taxi driver who leaves hurriedly, but with a generous tip, one of several details which the couple critiques each other about, so they do not arouse any undue suspicion. Alfred and Kamala Mark, aside from a few specific personality quirks, are again perfect in every exacting detail of what an upper-middle-class couple should look like and appear to be, impeccably dressed, with smooth and unblemished skin, and the epitome of human statuesque physiques. But Alfred can't help but complain that no matter how perfectly symmetrical their forms may be, they are unnervingly different as in they are not used to inhabiting the specific physical differences of the opposite sex, or having the joints of their appendages only bend in one direction. No matter, both Alfred and Kamala quickly return to the matter at hand, to unpack and settle into their new environment, and make contact with their original advanced reconnaissance agents, who they lost contact with some 11 circuits ago, or 30 years in Earth-measured time. Later, while having dinner, Alfred is appalled at his newfound primitive existence, eating the flesh of animals, which he deigns as barbaric, cannibalistic, and savage. However, before they are consumed with an almost uncontrollable tirade of disgust for their current assignment, Alfred and Kamala snap quickly back to their perfected human appearances and behaviors when they answer a knock at their front door, where they are greeted by an elderly and jovial couple, Lucian and Ruth Bruner, friendly, gregarious and downright neighborly. After inviting them in, Alfred believes that Lucian and Ruth are the lost alien agents who they have been trying to contact. In the course of the conversation, Alfred admits that he has been reassigned here to start a new job at the United States Defense Research Center. And after several attempts at trying to pry into who they really are, it appears both to Alfred and Kamala that this elderly couple is simply that, two very unassuming, very pleasant, and incredibly friendly neighbors who are almost neutralized by Kamala's hidden cigarette lighter-sized and cube-shaped weapon, in case her and Alfred's identities and mission were exposed. As he and Ruth leave for the evening, Lucian turns to Alfred and tells him that he looks forward to their next meeting and hopefully can engage in a deeper and more philosophical discussion. Before experiencing the human ritual of sleep, Alfred and Kamala debrief themselves on their first day's mission parameters— the Bruner's closeness and affection puzzle them, because such an emotional connection is a foreign concept to them. However, Alfred returns their focus to their primary goal for this mission, to discover the secret defense of Earth before their race can occupy the planet, correction, Base 117, for their strategic purposes. The next day, Alfred goes off to work, while Kamala, who is standing in the middle of the street, still in her nightgown, is taken under Ruth's friendly wing to learn all there is to know about breakfast. 
At the Defense Center, it seems that Alfred's reputation, background information, and CV have preceded him, just as Kamala planted in their database prior to his arrival. In fact, Alfred's qualifications were so impressive, the plant manager offered him his choice of fields to work with. But Alfred simply states, he's there to observe and learn. Upon returning home, Alfred catches Kamala in the middle of preparing dinner. Well, breakfast for dinner, since she's recently taken to enjoying omelets, thanks to Ruth. In the midst of their conversation, Alfred and Kamala reaffirm the parameters of their mission and how their orders are incontrovertible to discover Earth's secret defense measures and report their findings to their authorities. Alfred believes he is close to discovering the truth and tells Kamala that they will be leaving soon. Act 2. The next day, Alfred and Kamala are trudging through a field way outside of town, heading towards their hidden ship. Suddenly, they come upon Lucian, who appears to be waiting for them, but claims to be just as surprised to run into his new friends as they are, stumbling upon him and so close to where their ship is buried. Lucian calls Ruth over, and they tell Alfred and Kamala that this has been their secret secluded hideaway for about 30 years, a perfect spot to just enjoy the peace and quiet while enjoying a distant, panoramic view of the town below. Kamala tries to maneuver herself and Alfred back to their original plan to find their ship, but Alfred is more interested in engaging with Lucian, even over Kamala's protests, and reminder that cultural agents are supposed to engage human beings for this kind of intrusive study, and not them. However, Lucian seems to have been spoiling for a good philosophical debate, as he mentioned the other night at dinner. And so he grabs Alfred, and the two head off away from the camp, while Kamala and Ruth attend the evening's meal preparations. As they engage in their battle of wits, Lucian seems incredibly interested in testing Alfred's personal conviction and philosophy. Alfred believes that, without learning responsibility, without learning to live together in peace, without learning to even control his own self, man is reaching a point where he can meddle with the very mechanics of the universe— only one thing can result. Chaos. But if all this is true, and if the universe is a perfectly ordered thing, says Lucian, it would protect its orderly pattern by destroying man. And after a series of battling these points back and forth, Lucian gains the upper hand, reversing Alfred's logic with one specific point. If Alfred's so-called universal order demands change, then what if humanity itself is the agent and source of that change? And perhaps there is a defense mechanism in place to protect humanity from Alfred's theory of universal order. Alfred hears defense and quickly ends the conversation and heads back to camp to collect Kamala so they can return to their mission objective. But when Kamala accidentally trips and falls into Alfred's arms, he instinctively embraces her and begins to feel... Even Lucian and Ruth give the young couple a good ribbing about finally showing each other some sign of affection. Alfred and Kamala, in the moment of being consumed by these newfound and unexpected sensations, pull away from each other, much to Lucian's and Ruth's chagrin, hoping to see the young couple succumb to their greater and obvious passions for each other. That evening, Alfred and Kamala are in the middle of dinner when Lucian stops by, hoping to find his pipe that he accidentally left behind. He can't help but notice and mention how close Alfred and Kamala have become in such a brief period of time. He tells Alfred that he and Kamala remind him of how he and Ruth were when they were younger, 
After Lucian leaves with his pipe, Alfred and Kamala try to assess what is happening to them, to catalog these new and somewhat uncontrollable emotional sensations that are beginning to overcome them. Alfred wonders if there is a point of no return to this emotional change, and to Kamala's surprise, he kisses her passionately on the lips. Alfred is overwhelmed in proving his theory. Kamala, however, is not. Early the next morning, Alfred, who has been unable to sleep, rushes out the door, jumps in his car, and races towards the open field where their ship is buried. Kamala chases after him on foot and still in her nightgown, wondering all the while if he is executing the final stage of their mission. When she catches up with him, Alfred is sitting on a rock, deep in thought and utterly exhausted. He confesses to her that he finally discovered Earth's defense— a force so powerful that he had no other choice but to send that very information to his superiors and then destroy their ship. What Alfred didn't tell them, and what he confessed to Kamala, is that something has changed inside the both of them, that order isn't the dominant pattern of the universe, and that love for all things, and especially for each other, is Earth's greatest defense. And, off in the distance, watching Alfred and Kamala all the while, are Lucian and Ruth, who reminisce about when they first landed on Earth. Ruth asks Lucian if they will ever tell the young couple the truth. Lucian, looking down at a similar cigarette lighter-shaped cube weapon, like Kamala's, says, well, perhaps someday. The End Excellent job, Norm. There is a lot going on in this story. Like I said, this is, a, this is another short script, about half an hour. There's a lot going on here, man. Yeah, you know, one of the things that really struck me first, and uh, please bear with us, listeners, because I feel that this is something that's worth discussing in, in an observation. Like, Gene, obviously, as a, as a writer, you know, he creates the names for his characters, but there are names in this script that are so unique that I had to look up why Gene chose these specific names for Alfred, Kamala, Lucian, and Ruth. So, Alfred... And this is all available online, you know, if you want to look at the etymology of these names. But Alfred uh, means elf council and is derived from the Old English Aelfred, uh, composed of elf, meaning elf, and raid, meaning council. So it means elf council. Also, uh, most notably uh, named the the greatest king in England, you know, quote unquote, the greatest was Alfred the Great, known for his valiant defense of his kingdom against a stronger enemy and for securing peace with the Vikings. Okay, so you have this. Then you have Kamala, which I thought was a super unique name. And Kamala means lotus flower in Hindi, but is also the other name for the Hindu goddess Lakshmi, who is the goddess of wealth, fortune, and prosperity, but also the wife of Vishnu, who is the god of preservation and the great maintainer who often appears in various incarnations and provides salvation for humanity. See where I'm going with this? Interesting. So, and then you have their last name, Mark. And Mark is a common male name and is related to the Latin word Mars. It means consecrated to the god Mars, and it also may mean god of war or to be warlike. So if you put Alfred and Kamala Mark all together, Alfred Mark may mean counsel or advisor of war and securing peace with who he believes is a chaotic and barbaric people. And Kamala may mean fortune or prosperity of war because Kamala always challenged Alfred and their mission to discover the defense of 117. What do you think about this, Earl? Keep going, man. I'm, you've, you've got me convinced. 
But this is why I wanted to look into these names, because Lucian isn't just kind of your normal, typical, neighborly name for a person. Actually, they describe him in the script as being very kind of like jovial, rotund, and Rotarian-like. You know, it's very 1950s. But all of a sudden, you know, he rings the doorbell and says, hi, I'm Lucian. That kind of struck me as funny. So Lucian is derived from the Latin Lucianus, where lux means light. Therefore, this name, his name, denotes brightness, hope, and knowledge, and was given to those seen as a source of light and enlightenment. Then you have Ruth. From the Bible, Ruth is predominantly a girl's name of Hebrew origin, meaning friend, friendship, or compassionate friend. It is derived from the Hebrew word Ruth, meaning friend. Their last name, though, this is what really I found interesting. Brunner is a German surname. It originated from the Middle High German word Brun, meaning spring or water well. So when you associate all of their names together, Lucian Brunner may mean wellspring of enlightenment or light, hope, and knowledge. And Ruth Brunner may mean wellspring of compassion and friendship. So these are like almost to the letter how these characters are written in this script. Nicely done. Anytime you stick the name Lucian in front of me, I am thinking of the magics of Megas 2. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Friend Kirk! Listening to you pull this stuff up and put it together, I am, I am impressed. And yeah, you've got me convinced that none of these names are a coincidence. None of them. Yeah, I don't think so. You know, and I think that... Jean's being very obviously specific in particular because there has to be like a deeper meaning to, I think, a lot of where he's going with his writing. And this is about like on the surface. Uh, it could be very benign as a TV show, you know, and, and in terms of how the audience may absorb this. But it's it's very subversive in a way. You know, because the, the names really do mean something. Maybe like looking forward into the future's of the future scripts that we're going to review, this may be a pattern that emerges, you know, with him. Yeah, you're almost making it sound like this is someone who is going to make a habit of slipping messaging to people into their entertainment, into their exciting adventures, whether they be westerns or space opera or what have you. Now, you mentioned before Alan Young's name is crossed out in pencil, and this is all on the cover sheet of of the script I'm, I'm wondering if this is supposed to be a, a maybe a final draft or shooting script why it was crossed out in pencil and why the word defense was crossed out in pencil and replaced with the word weapon because if that's the case it sounds like this is a very last minute change it's possible that it was a very last minute change but here's another another little piece of trivia that may have some bearing on these handwritten changes the script for The Secret Weapon of 117 was offered in photocopied form by Lincoln Enterprises, which is a forerunner of Roddenberry Entertainment as we know it now, especially during the 70s when Gene and Majel were you know, hauling merch to vendor tables at conventions and speaking and doing things like that, you know, which was at that time in kind of those fallow years between promising projects that were paying the bills that was also how they paid the bills and so there are copies of this script floating around out there 
It's fairly well known that Lincoln Enterprises did offer this at one point. It was in their mail order catalog, and they would sell it at conventions, and they would sell it by mail order. And keep in mind, in the 70s, you don't really have commercially available or consumer-level available word processors. So if you're going to photocopy this and sell it, you've just got to make the changes however you make the changes. And in the meantime, you know, even those people who've got a photocopy, even though they can tell the pencil is not, you know, applied to their particular sheet of paper, it's like, ooh, I've got something handwritten by Gene on here. It is what it is. You just make it work somehow. It's what's. It's what's. It's what's. When I was reading the character descriptions, like very early on in the script on page four, there is this very specific you know, description of, of uh, Alfred and, and Kamala Mark. And I want to read Alfred's. And because you know it was changed from Alan Young to Ricardo Montalban, maybe our audience can see this now. Maybe they, they see why this change was made. Because Alfred, this is his description, appears to be in his late 20s and would be good-looking except for his immobile expression and the fact that his features are almost too regular, too fair, and unblemished. As if a makeup artist had overdone the pancake, he wears a perfectly tailored Brooks suit. I'm assuming Brooks Brothers. Every accessory, every line in a style magazine sketch. So he is picture-perfect. And I think that if we, in our mind's eye, extrapolate that description, that, to me... And after looking and Googling Ricardo Montalban of that age, would be perfect. Yeah. And and we know, you know, as far as this kind of immobile expression and this dispassionate error that he carries himself with, that Alfred carries himself with, Montalban was a master of kind of that thousand-yard stare that also was staring directly through you. Mm -hmm. And I Um, I can totally imagine every scene in this, how he would have done it. He was also very particular about Kamala as well. So Kamala, this is the description of her character, is an almost exact reproduction, but along the female line. A perfect 38 in the right places, but carrying it as if she hadn't had it for long. Now, I was wondering, why 38? Why that particular size? So I looked in the history of fashion, you know, online, and in fashion, for reference to Kamala's body type, a 38 in Italian fashion, is a small, and in France, is a medium, and in the U.S., is a size two. This is a very petite woman. And in contrast to maybe being cast against Ricardo Montalban, they may have been the perfect counterpoint to each other physically, which would convey a lot about how the characters were written and then they, how they change. So maybe that's another reason why Ricardo was recast or Alan Young was recast for Ricardo so that he had better on-screen chemistry physically with with who played Kamala. That could be. And like I said, I really want to track down Canadian Mounties versus Atomic Invaders <laughs> so I can see Susan Morrow at work and get a feel for how this would have worked because I am far less familiar with her body of work than I am with Ricardo Montalban's. There's a, a really wonderful economy of writing that Gene has in this script. And you've brought this up before. I mean, there's a lot going on in a, uh, we assume was going to be a 22-ish minute episode. On page nine, this is way early on in the script, Alfred says to Kamala, this body is an excellent piece of work, yours and mine both. In fact, perfect homo sapiens. But this is the interesting thing. And this is where you kind of like say, okay, this isn't exactly what it seems. Kamala says, they're not quite the same though. And Alfred says, 
we are now opposite sexes. So there's this, you know, obviously there's this insinuation that they may have been an asexual species. There are obviously some details that, you know, we can't give every single person out there based on the script because we'd be here for another, I don't know, three, four days. But I love that it's just matter-of-factly placed in the script that we are now in these very awkward, joint-only-moves-one-way, typical perfect human bodies, but now we're two different sexes. Yeah, how does the suspension work in these things? How's the steering? Going back to the uh, economy of writing, I love how he wrote the description for Lucian, especially between Lucian and Ruth. Lucian was described with the shorthand of this one word that I think is very typical of how you describe maybe the neighborly figure in the 1950s, Lucian as being a Rotarian, right? Because in a Rotarian in the 1950s, even to now, because I'm also a Rotarian, a Rotarian means that they are someone synonymous with serving their community through fellowship, outreach, fundraising, you know, someone who brings the uh, the neighborhood together. They were the first ones that, you know, came to Alfred's and Kamala's door with, again, general signs of friendship and affection, you know, and, and general good neighborliness. That's exactly what that word means. And that's exactly going back to Lucian's description of being this wellspring of light and hope and friendship. I thought that was just absolutely brilliant. So all of that stuff is, is really like working together like clockwork. Yeah, he's making very specific choices here in describing these characters, you know, kind of in some ways casting from the script. It's very interesting to listen to you dig into this. You know, you've got me convinced there was a very in-depth, well-considered series of very specific choices made in setting these characters up. Just to round out um, some of the observations from Act 1, there's a scene where Lucian and Ruth are getting to know Alfred and Kamala to the point where I think it's making Kamala a little bit nervous. She goes to her bedroom and in the, the script description, you know, she she's looking for a cigarette sized cube shaped weapon. And this wasn't in the recap, but she tests it by stroking the uh, the weapon a couple times with her thumb. And then it obviously and then it like shoots out this beam. I would love to have seen this on the actual show. And then it cuts the curtain in her bedroom in half, almost as if it was like a laser. It's interesting that this is the first time that I think that we've seen Gene describe some type of alien weapon, but he didn't go for like the standard stereotype Martian ray gun, something that was very small. Obviously, it was going to get tied into what Lucian had in his hand at the end of the script, showing that and without basically being too overbearing that they were the lost team from 30 years ago that Alfred and Kamala assumed that they met at dinner but weren't sure. And then through the course of the script, they're like, nope, they are those aliens from 30 years ago. So what do you think about that weapon? I love it because we've already established that the bodies that Alfred and Kamala are in now are unfamiliar to them. And apparently nothing like whatever their native form is so why would their weapons have a form factor, you know, like a human handgun? There would be no mm-hmm. reason for that. N- now, right. a-, a lot of shows and movies make that mistake and everything looks like a gun. I remember one of the Peter Cushing Doctor Who movies, the Daleks control panels has like toggle throw switches on it. And it's like, wait a minute, they have sink plungers for arms how does that work did someone skip this detail in the production design or did we just buy off the shelf and 
build it in a hurry. It's very easy to take things like that for granted. Again, this shows the depth of thought that Gene has put into it in making sure we understand these people are nothing like us. They may look like us now, but it's a smokescreen. It's a duck blind. There's so much really interesting detail that there, it's come with like a red herring type of situation uh, with Ruth and Lucian, especially when it comes to how they, quote unquote, were stumbled upon by Alfred and Kamala when they were looking for their ship. Because in scene 48, there's a description of Ruth's and Lucian's secret spot where they love, you know, looking over the town. It says, long ago, someone had apparently constructed a rough fireplace out of rocks, added a grate, and built some log seats. A very beautiful, cozy little picnic spot, obviously used and taken care of over the years. A fire is popping merrily away in a picnic basket sits nearby. Thermos, bottle, and other paraphernalia lies about. I love that when we finally learn about the the origin of, of Lucian and Ruth coming to Earth, falling in love you know, realizing that Earth's defense is the emotion that they learned, that this is maybe where they buried their ship, but instead they just turned it into their their special spot. I think Alfred started to suspect that this may be the case, but it wasn't until we see the letter at the end that that actually was the case. And I think that the audience maybe at the time, certainly for me, I'm not sure for you, were teetering on the are they or are they not these aliens and I think that at the end, it, doesn't, it didn't matter because the moral meaning or message was already established. And then the subversion just made it so much more so. Yeah, I had that exact same thought. It's like, oh, we, we parked in the same place and they're about to find out. Because I have a feeling that's why they were there. That's why Lucian and Ruth were there. They were like, oh, you know, there's only one place around here that you could park a ship the size of whatever it takes to get us from where we came from to this planet. I bet theirs is in the same spot. But I also like the misdirect that is going on throughout this because, you know, at the very beginning when Alfred and Kamala first meet Lucian and Ruth, you know, they just assume these are them. And then Lucian does a lot of legwork to throw that assumption off. But again, nothing is what it seems with these people. You know, Earl, the more I read this script and the more that I saw Alfred's and Kamala's transformation over the course of, you know, all of these pages, 40, what, 45, 46, something like pages, dare I say 47 pages, something that I found very familiar about them in a almost proto-Vulcan-ish kind of way, or should I say proto-Vulcanian since we're closer to the beginning of Star Trek than, than the end of Star Trek, there's... A scene, scene 39, where Alfred comes back from work, and this is after Kamala learns how to make omelets from Ruth. And Alfred says, I'll have a salad. It's a life form, but at least it's not a first cousin. This is in reference to how he felt that eating a steak was barbaric and cannibalistic as humans would eat a distant cousin to their own species. Kamala says, you're very careful for an agent who plans to wipe out 4 billion human beings. Alfred says, what our military caste does is no concern of mine. Are you in disagreement with plans of a leader caste? 
And Kamala says, Order B-19721, planet agents are directed to exercise their powers of logic within the limits of universal policy. So there are some small, fine details that make me feel like this is maybe where Gene's origins of the Vulcan species may have come from. Because one, Alfred has this great disdain for eating live species or animal products. Two, there's the phrase exercise their powers of logic when Kamala returned Alfred back to understanding and, you know, reassessing their military orders. So there's this distant uh, critique that Alfred and Kamala are filtering about their, you know, their experience with humanity so far. And it really does feel like the very first time that maybe Spock wrestled with human contamination and how it may or may not have changed him over the course of, you know, his character development. So I love that in the end, Alfred understands that the secret defense of earth is love. And that's more important than order, which he argued tooth and nail with, with Lucian earlier. And I love that Kamala isn't swayed by that because Ruth offered Kamala more friendship, but Lucian offered Alfred a more philosophical open door to walk through and make his own decision about what is better in the course of the universe, human love and compassion or logic and order. I feel like all of this is legwork that's being done in the dialogue very deliberately, very carefully to establish, again, these people are not us. They are not anything like us. But cold logic, I think we are dealing with, you know, perhaps something of a, uh, of a Cold War trope. You were starting to have, you know, on a societal level, we were starting to have the expectations that there would be machines making decisions down the road. And I think there's kind of a, maybe it's a little bit Luddite, or maybe it's perfectly natural since we are not machines. I think it's natural to kind of fear that kind of emotionally detached decision-making, a kind of decision-making that will not work in our favor as very flawed flesh and blood ruled by emotion. Occasionally, instincts, lower animal drives, reptile brain, whatever you want to call it. There, there was something in the script early on when... Lucian and Ruth appeared at Alfred and Kamala's doorstep. They invited them in. And then obviously Lucian, he's always kind of spoiling for an argument or a debate of some kind. And they get on the topic of religion. And I'm just wondering if this is the first time that we may have seen Gene's belief system of the time peek through into his scripts. Because in these earlier conversations that Alfred and Lucian had at the dinner table, Alfred believes that Lucian and Ruth were the agents that their species lost contact with. And there's this wonderful kind of threes company, Mr. Roper misunderstanding, like in the middle of a conversation confusion that was happening. And maybe that was specifically created so that we to the audience were confused in that way. But in this short span of dialogue, something really I thought important happened. Alfred says to Lucian, are you under the delusion that you were sent here to be happy? Alfred still believes that they are the lost alien team. Lucian says, 
I'd prefer not to argue religion. Alfred says, religion? And then Alfred throws a look at Kamala, registering complete disgust. That was part of the script. So what do you think that Lucian was getting at when he deflected Alfred's questioning about, quote-unquote, being sent to Earth with, quote-unquote, being happy and correlating that to, quote-unquote, religion? So I took this as Lucian, at this time, perhaps knowing what he knows from being on Earth for these past 30 years and about religious belief systems, just as a reflex to what Alfred was asking him and maybe interpreting this question as being sent to Earth to be happy as or it equates to maybe being sent by God to find happiness on Earth. I'm not exactly sure if that's what Lucian was interpreting that as or if that's exactly what Alfred was asking Lucian because he believed he was an alien still. I'm still a little puzzled why Alfred was so curt, you know, and very direct and obviously disgusted with Lucian's response to the point where he's looking at Kamala. And maybe that's the look where he said, "Okay, Kamala, go get your cube shaped lighter weapon and power it up because I think we need to take these two out because it's um." Unless their species disavowed religion entirely, the mere mention of the word religion really bent Alfred at that moment in the, in the dinner discussion, don't you think? I want to put another possibility to you for your consideration, mm-hmm. and that is that this is all part of a jolly little dance that Lucian is doing around Alfred to cover his own backside and to prevent Alfred from realizing that he and Ruth are in fact the missing previous agents. Yeah, I think this is all part of the smokescreen. He is trying to completely obfuscate things. And yes, he he is using local knowledge that he has acquired over 30 years of living among humans on Earth to say something that would not come out of place if someone from Earth said it. So therefore, this is part of what Lucian is doing to try to convince Alfred... You know, these are not the, well, not droids, but whatever they are, these are not the ones you're looking for. Right. I think this is part of the smokescreen, and in some ways it feels like the whole philosophical debate that goes on between Lucian and Alfred is Lucian is trying to figure out how much of a threat this guy is. You know what? I haven't even considered that. Lucian may have to take Alfred out before Alfred brings his plan to fruition. Mm. He may have to go get his little cube and say, hey, buddy, you know what? This is not going to happen. Not to this planet. I like these people too much. So in that sense, there is the obvious narrative conclusion that love and compassion is the secret defense of 117, but or the secret weapon. But the way that I see you describing it as Lucian and Ruth are protecting Earth from any possible other incursion team like Alfred and Kamala that would threaten Earth and the happiness that they've created. But maybe, oh, this is so interesting, maybe Lucian and Ruth, or maybe Lucian felt that Alfred is at least, as it, he's at least open to discussing something. And maybe Lucian felt like I can turn him instead of you know annihilate or eliminate him. Right, because you have to figure Lucian and Ruth came to Earth with the same orders. They know what Alfred and Kamala are there to do, and they probably figure that they will have to stop them, either with, you know, as you put it a couple of weeks ago, the weapon of the word, 
or a much more literal weapon. It, it may be a verbal dance, but it's a very dangerous one. It's kind of like two fighters circling each mm-hmm. other, trying to figure out where are the weaknesses, where's the jab going to come from. On a somewhat lighter note, sci-fi and comedy are two categories that traditionally go together like cheap burritos and Cabernet Sauvignon. It's not inconceivable that they might work together, but you better have a pretty good plan to make that happen. Because in the history of the genre, in the history of the two genres together, for every Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, for every Red Dwarf, for every collision of sci-fi and comedy that has worked, there are a lot of things that didn't work quite as well. On Mission Log in the past, one recurring theme has been that episodes of that franchise that Gene went on to create, you know, even long after he was gone, episodes that set out to provide comic relief also have a batting average that's right up there with the Niners. But here we have Gene dropping a sci-fi rom-com on us, and I personally think it is firing on all cylinders on both counts. It is very high concept. It's also very romantic and just a little bit sexy. What are your thoughts here? I'm thinking along those same lines, too, because I think that when they establish the characters of Alfred and Kamala and uh, they start to, you know, slow drip reveal like who they are, that they're aliens and, you know, they're in these new bodies and their joints only move one way. And then, you know, there are instances where like Kamala, like she burns herself on the stove and she wants to like use her alien arms to be able to do certain things. You know, that's, it really all depends on the performance and how it's shot because, Alfred and Kamala are like the straight couple, straight as in like comedy straight. They play it very close to the vest. And then you have Lucian and Ruth who are kind of like, again, this very lighthearted, you know, very friendly, uh, very off-putting in that comedic timing kind of way couple. You could almost see George Costanza's parents playing, you know, Lucian and Ruth, you know, George Costanza from Steinfeld. You know, you had Jerry Stiller, you know, and Jerry Stiller is, okay, as Lucian, now I can't get that out of my head. Anyway. That provides your comedic timing. But at the same time, though, in the right moments, directed the right way, with the right sincerity, you can see both of those characters turn. I loved how you like posited the, the, the potential of Lucian being the secret defense to defend Earth against like more alien agent incursions because he loves what he learned about Earth so much that he's willing to do that. He's willing to betray his own race in order to protect his new home. That's something that is completely in line with what we know of Gene's writing from this point on in the future, especially with Star Trek. So, yeah, I mean, it's not a slapstick 90s sitcom rom-com for sure. But at the same time, though, that scene where the four of them are breaking camp, they're heading back into town, and uh, Kamala slips on a rock and falls into... Alfred's hands and then there's this wonderful soft focus possible scene where Ricardo is looking at you know his uh, his at Kamala and you have these like soft lighting filters and all of a sudden they're about to have the kiss doesn't happen but Lucian and Ruth are off in the you know in the distance you're like well it was about time you two crazy kids you know it's about time that you guys actually started feeling something and I think that's what Lucian is basically seeing from 30 years ago like that's the moment That's the moment where she and I, where Ruth and I fell in love in a similar way, where we finally realized that because of the bodies and the hormones and and all of the chemical changes that are going on with us and our alien, our new alien forms, we can't help 
but feel what they feel. And that's more powerful than anything they could possibly have anticipated. And Lucian's just waiting for it to happen. And I think that's why that he feels so strongly about converting them as opposed to controlling them or, you know, removing them from the equation. If you can't beat him, join him, right? Is that the rule? That's, that's the thing he's trying to do. He's, you can't beat, you know, Lucian and Ruth at their own game. You might as well join them. All right, Norman, I think we might have sussed out the secret weapon or the secret defense of 117 here. And this is where we normally just kind of bring it all home and try to find the morals, the meanings, and messages. Some early scripts in Gene's body of work, we haven't always found anything that qualified as a terribly strong message. I think that is not the case here. I think this is this is some classic Roddenberry going on here. I might as well just rip off the band-aid. I love this script. I absolutely love this. It is surreal, it's subversive. It's also simultaneously kind of weirdly wholesome. And I just feel like Gene had a huge twinkle in his eye while he was writing this whole thing because he was going to slip something like this onto the primetime schedule of stations across the country. There's going to be something in it that was going to slip past some people, but would definitely land with others. And in the meantime, of course, he sold another script and gets to chuckle all the way to the bank to deposit the check. Now, we are about exactly a year after the transporter, and the difference could not be more pronounced. Now, again, we do have some really high-concept ideas happening in both the transporter story pitch and in this produced script, but Secret Weapon of 117 is all about its characters. And if you remember, I said that that was what I felt prevented the transporter from selling. It was all idea with nothing for the audience to identify with. And granted, it's made very clear from the outset that Alfred and Kamala are not us, and yet we very quickly get to identify with them as they assimilate little by little into our primitive ways. We do identify with Lucian and Ruth, and then we find out they're not us either. But maybe what Gene is saying here is, it doesn't matter that these people are not us or not like us. It doesn't matter one bit. Does any of this sound familiar to anyone? Do I need to say it louder for the folks in the back? We can identify with the other. It's perfectly okay, because in the end, we're not all that different. We, we're about as different from the other as Alfred is from the last steak that got served to him. Common ground can be found. And if that's a message we all need to hear right now, and kind of depressingly, from 1956 to 2023, the need for that message has only grown. And Gene's already delivering the goods in 1956. And, as a bonus, in Chicago, it's being introduced by Don Amici. There are so many deep ideas and high concepts, but what makes this work is we identify with and care about the characters in this marvelous little bite-sized morsel of a sci-fi rom-com. There's a real character arc for them in the space of 20-something minutes. I'm not sure there's really any one singular moment we can point to and say, ah, this is it. This is where Gene found his footing. But I've got to say, the secret weapon of 117 is a very strong candidate for that description. 
And the great thing is, it's so simple. With just a few minor modifications, you could mount this as a stage play. And you would have a stage play by Gene Roddenberry. But wouldn't that be something? I love where your head's at with that, Earl, because you're right. There's, what, three location changes? There's the the house. There's the, the field. And then there's the defense research center. I think that's it, really. Yeah, and you could probably do some stuff to bring some of that inside. He may have to modify or lop off the bit with the cab and the cabbie Mm -hmm. because, you know, that means that involves a vehicle. You know, you'd have to figure out some ways around that. But it's so simple because these shows, these Playhouse anthology shows, did not have a huge amount of resources. I mean, it was basically a stage play with cameras running. I mean, I'm still with you, like, all the way with how much I love this script. As many of you may have been able to tell from, you know, my almost continuous tirades, you know, the course of observations and discussion. Uh, But I agree with you, Earl. I think that this is probably the most solid footing that we've seen from Gene in terms of what we have come to know of him as a writer, especially for Star Trek, and how that particular style has obviously echoed throughout time. And I want to focus on a very particular exchange in the script between Lucian and Alfred. I think this is maybe one of those pivotal moments where Alfred was starting to change or maybe just concede that he doesn't know exactly everything there needs to be known about why there is this quote unquote defense of 117. But as much as I saw it in them, I can see this easily, easily in Kirk and Spock, this kind of discussion because it's so, you know, fundamentally in the style of Gene's writing. So in act two, or at least towards the end of act two, Lucian in my opinion, has successfully goaded Alfred into a debate. And the results are very revealing for maybe both of them, but maybe for the audience as well. This is that subversive message that has maybe slipped through the way that Gene writes. Lucian says, if there is order in things, then it follows that there must also be purpose. And Alfred agrees. Lucian says, so the universe exists for some reason. Alfred says, that's logical, I suppose. Lucian says, has the universe achieved its purpose? And Alfred says, of course not. Otherwise, there would be no point in continuing. Lucian responds, ah, then the universe needs a source of change that will allow its purpose to be achieved. And Alfred says, are you seriously suggesting that the human race is that source of change, that it serves a purpose? Now, this, in my opinion, is at the very heart of what we have come to know of Gene Roddenberry's style. He has traditionally placed humanity at the center of change, not only for our history and potential future, but as we see in Star Trek, for the greater benefit of the universe as well. Now, as he said in his most, one of his most famous quotes, and Earl, you are alluding to this perfectly, quote, in a very real sense, we are all aliens on a strange planet. We spend most of our lives reaching out and trying to communicate If during our whole lifetime, we could reach out and really communicate with just two people, we are indeed very fortunate, end quote. This is exactly the lesson Alfred learned from Lucian. Maybe we, the audience as well. Maybe Lucian in turn learned it from observing and when he was integrating his and Ruth's lives when they crash landed there 30 years ago from the same mission. 
And perhaps there was another team. We were talking about this before. Maybe there was another team before them who was changed in the same way that Gene described as reaching out and really communicating with just two people as Lucian and Ruth did with Alfred and Kamala. Who will maybe perhaps do the same to another alien team when the time comes? Perhaps in another 30 years. Mission Log Genealogy is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Special thanks to the Roddenberry Repertory players. Our cast this week featured James Kerwin as Alfred Mark and Charlene Schmidt as Kamala Mark. If you would like to support us directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog for early access to shows and the Mission Log Discord. If you have any material that might be of interest to us that isn't already in the Roddenberry archive, drop us a line at missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our website is missionlogpodcast.com. On the next genealogy, Reformed Criminal. Special thanks to consulting producers Matt Esposito, Omar Frizzell, Tom Kozak, Julie Miller, Mike Richards, Mike Shabel, Paul Shadwell, and David Takachi. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.